Psalm 146, and uh, that says wonderful words. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the blind, the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over his str the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Um, before I read you our uh, sermon, I, and uh, I, I don't have a sermon text today. I'm so used to going to Exodus, I don't have to actually open this. Um, before I uh, get into the sermon, uh, just was told that the death toll at the gay bar is now up to 53 people that were killed, and uh, it was a Muslim, and uh, two, two things are going to happen. One is that they are going to uh, uh, say that he does not represent Islam, and secondly, they are going to say that our guns need to be confiscated. These, these are the two things you're going to hear the most in the day ahead. I'm sorry for those people that lost their lives. They made their choice in this life, and now they will face God on whatever terms they stood with or against him. And I think most of us know uh, what we believe as far as that issue. Um, but uh, we are certainly entering a time in the world of great trial and tragedy. Okay? And uh, that is reflected in what's going on, and it's only going to get worse. And so today's sermon, I hope, will give you some hope and some comfort. And I will say this before I actually uh, get into my notes, that if you do not know your Old Testament, you are not going to understand a thing that I say today. And even if you understand some of the, the passages, unless you take them in context, it's going to be a mystery to you. So I just want you to know that in advance. This is not your regular rapture sermon that you can turn on 1,000 different videos and they all say the same thing with a guy just giving different life applications. This is from the Old Testament and it is not just verses that, hey, this might be a rapture verse. This is actual pictures of what is coming in redemptive history. Everything in the Bible is pictured in the Old Testament. Everything. It's all revealed there and that's why we go through the sermons that we go through. So... If you have followed along with the Superior Word sermons, then you are fully aware that every single passage of Scripture points to Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. In our journey through Genesis, Ruth, and our continued journey through Exodus, we have seen literally thousands of such types and pictures. Everybody agree to that? Thousands and thousands of pictures of Christ. If you haven't been following along with our sermons, then get on the stick and get to it. Proper theological understanding of the New Testament, and I am serious about this, is pretty much impossible without knowing the old. This does not mean that the core doctrines of the faith are unattainable without the old, but it does mean that those core doctrines are likely to be misunderstood without first knowing the context of what has been seen in the Old Testament. And so it's a shame that so many people run ahead with their theology by either making stuff up out of their own head concerning doctrinal issues or they have an unbalanced view of those doctrines because they haven't taken the time to see what God has already shown in types and in pictures. 
This is what we call progressive revelation. God progressively reveals himself. All right? This problem results in countless variations of biblical doctrines with proponents of a particular view misanalyzing verses and coming to faulty conclusions. From their skewed analyses come followers who only further propagate what is clearly wrong. In reality, then, there is actual harm to what is being relayed in the Bible by evaluating the New Testament verses without considering the pictures from the Old. Solomon tells us this in a very unique way with the following words. They are our text verse for this sermon. This is from Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. That which has been will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. This isn't some arbitrary statement meant to confuse the reader of the Bible concerning possible historical patterns. Instead, it is a note from the mind of God to the readers of his word that he repeats things in order for us to see what will happen again. If it is recorded in his word, we can expect the same type of thing to occur again in the process of redemptive history. As this is so, and as the doctrine of the rapture is accepted by dispensationalists as a valid doctrine, then there must be types and pictures of it in the Old Testament. The question is then, if it is pictured in the Old Testament, can we determine whether a pre-, mid-, or post-tribulation rapture is defined as well? And the answer is a resounding yes. Today, we will take a very brief look into four different accounts, all of which point to a pre-tribulation rapture. Two are from Genesis, one is from Exodus, and the final one is from Ruth. We will do this without making unfounded deductions, and we will analyze these types in proper context. It may be that you won't fully understand what I present. The reason for this is that each of these pictures comes from a greater whole which was laid out in a sequence of sermons based on an entire passage. What you might want to do is go back and watch the surrounding sermons if you aren't cluing into what is presented. Question, why is it that some people who accept that there will be a rapture still adamantly refuse to believe that it will be a pre-tribulation rapture? I believe that my friend Richard, who lives in Auckland, New Zealand, sums it up very well. He says this, I suspect that underlying the anti-pre-trib rapture movement, there is a deficient understanding of the finished work of Christ and the cross. This idea that we have to go through part or all of the tribulation seems like a form of Protestant purgatory to me. He's right about that. I love the term he used. That somehow by enduring the tribulation horror adds some kind of merit to the broken body and shed blood of the Savior. He is right. Christ's work is sufficient, and Christ will not allow his bride to be subjected to this time of wrath to come. She is his precious jewel, not his punching bag. We will see this today, especially in the book of Ruth. Before we get into these things, though, it should be noted that the rapture is not some impossible doctrine which should be laughed off by anyone of reason. Rather, it's already happened twice in history to two different individuals. The first was Enoch. His translation is described in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, with these words. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. His translation is further explained in Hebrews chapter 11, 
where it says in the fifth verse, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The second translation is that of Elijah. His is recorded in two kings with these words. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah is still alive today, and his return is expected before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is coming. What is most probable is that together Enoch and Elijah a Gentile and a Hebrew will come back as the two witnesses of Revelation. This can be sufficiently determined from several passages of Scripture, but it is not relative to the doctrine of the rapture, so we're not going to go there today. However, their translation is, if God can take them up, he can do the same for all of the saints of the church, just as his word says. I hope that you enjoy this word from God's word today. And if you enjoy this sermon, but have never watched the Superior Word sermons before, then you're only cheating yourself. Go back to Genesis 1, verse 1, and start watching. If you watch one a day, like taking your vitamins, you'll be caught up in about a year and a half. Actually, it's not true. It'll be about a half a year. So get started. Great stuff is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today. The first one is pulled out of danger. This is Genesis 19, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Lot was in a pickle. He was a fallible man, but he was also a righteous man. This is seen in the words of Peter in the New Testament. Here's what Peter says. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So we see that despite his failings, he was a righteous man. It is a biblical axiom, however, that righteousness stems not from man, but from God. Therefore, he is used as a picture of those who are in the Lord's church. They are deemed righteous by God because of the work of Christ, not because we are inherently righteous. Just look around at those in the church and then go home and look in the mirror too, and you will see that this is true. Just as Lot was tormented in his righteous soul because of the depravity of the world around him, so we should be tormented at the horrendous depravity around us. The pattern of the past is seen again in today's cesspool of wickedness. One week's prophecy update is enough to show anyone with even a modicum of morals that we are ripe for judgment. For those whose hope is not in this world, 
we have the same hope of an open door before us as that which John saw so long ago. Here's what it says in Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. John saw a door, and Lot was pulled through a door. Let's look again at the verses about him and see not only what literally happened to him, but what they are picturing for us. Verse 9, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. This verse here is tied to Genesis 19, verse 1, where Lot was noted as being at the city gate. He acted like a judge here because he was probably a judge at the gate. It's very probable, although not stated in the Bible, that he was appointed a judge after Abraham defeated the kings of the east. This was an awarded position then based on his relationship with his uncle. Whether this is the case or not, he sat in the gates and was noted as an authority. But the crowd is no longer interested in set authority and is determined to cast it off. They have become so depraved that they rejected his offer of his own daughters in place of the men that had come under the shelter of his roof. The people surrounding Lot's house are not only perverts, but they have become unreasonably violent by the conduct of their wicked lives. It sounds a lot like our world once again today, doesn't it? The translators of the Geneva Bible make this comment about living too close to sin, as Lot is. They say nothing is more dangerous than to live where sin reigns, for it corrupts all. This is a lesson Lot learned the hard way, and it is a lesson that we need to pay attention to in our own lives. Verse 10, But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Lot is brought into complete safety, away from the wickedness of the people and into the presence of the Lord. That the Lord is there isn't evident yet, but the term used for someone that he speaks to later indicates that the Lord is there with him behind the door. Once Lot is pulled in, the door that was open is now shut. Verse 11, And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. The type of blindness, or as the Hebrew says it here, with blindnesses, it is plural, is the word basanfarim. It is found only two times in the entire Old Testament. The other time is in 2 Kings 6, verse 18, with these words. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. The blindness they experience is a peculiar sort that has much more to do with the, the, the eyes. It, rather, it has to do with the mind. The heads of the people in Sodom, just like those with Elisha in Dothan, were confused, and their thinking was clouded. It is a state of blindness which is more mental and spiritual than physical. We know this because Elisha led the army of Syria all the way from Dothan to Samaria, and they followed him. The people of Sodom groped for the door, even though it's right there right there, but they can't find it. In other words, the very thing that they're intent upon finding is the thing that they can't see. It's as if they see a door and they find a thorn bush. And when they see a thorn bush, they think it's a door. Are you seeing how these verses picture the coming rapture? Let's stand back and look at the whole scene as if it were the time before Christ's coming for us and compare what we see with how the Bible describes that glorious day when we are called home. We saw how Peter describes the wickedness of the world, which will receive God's judgment. In those verses, he told about the righteousness of Lot. 
the similarity between the state of Sodom and the world which our liberal progressive leaders are rushing us towards is completely evident. The state that Sodom was is the state of today's world. Later in that same epistle, Peter speaks about the destruction of the people that he described and about the hope of the believer. Remember, these concepts are made in comparison to Sodom before and after its destruction. Here's what he says in 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the time of wickedness which preceded destruction, Lot was physically snatched back through the door by the angels and rescued by them from the people's evil intent. This is exactly how Paul describes our coming rescue in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For this, we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The word Paul uses for caught up there is harpagesometha, or in its more recognizable form, harpazo. It means to seize or carry by force or to snatch away. This is exactly the picture that we were given when the angels in the house seized Lot and pulled him behind the door and into the presence of the Lord. If you remember, after Lot was pulled to safety, the door was shut and no one could open it. All the outside were excluded from safety. Now see how Jesus explains the same concept to the church of Philadelphia and the result of being left out of his safe protection, just as Sodom was. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who will say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. There is an hour of trial coming upon the whole world, and the world will be destroyed because of the wickedness of the people. But we are promised safety from this, just as Lot was. Jesus' own words promise to keep us out. The Greek word is ek, out of this hour of trial. There is deliverance from it because of our position in him. Here is how Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, 
we should live together with him. We are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul explains the timing of this and what will occur after that moment. Listen carefully and see the amazing parallel to what occurred in Sodom. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paul notes that the restrainer will first be taken out of the way. This is the promise, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, and he is taken out and we are not, then that was not a very good guarantee. In fact, it was a pretty crummy one. Rather, God is faithful to keep us safe from the coming tribulation period. The next thing to notice is that it says in verse 8 that then the lawless one will be revealed. This is speaking of the Antichrist. If the Antichrist is only revealed after the one who restrains is taken out of the way, then that means that we will not know who the Antichrist is. So why watch a lot of nonsense videos that supposedly point out who he is? They've always failed and they will continue to do so because our focus in the church is to be on Christ, not on this person. Everybody here, please remember Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Thank you. Further, if the signing of the peace deal with Israel, which is for seven years, is initiated by the Antichrist, and if he is revealed after the rapture, and if the seven-year peace deal is the seven years of tribulation mentioned in Revelation, all of which are doctrinally correct statements, then this shows us with all certainty that the rapture is not post or mid-trib, but pre-tribulation. The fact that the Antichrist is the one who signs the peace deal is succinctly laid out in Daniel chapter 9, something I read during the prophecy update. Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. If he confirms a covenant with many for one week, and only in the middle of the week breaks the treaty, then this is speaking of the entire tribulation period. As we will not know who he is, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, then this assures us of a pre-tribulation rapture. And so let's continue with Lot. He was pulled through the door to safety, and only after that were the people given blindnesses, or sanvarim. Remember how I explained it then. This was a mental or a spiritual blindness, not a physical one. This is exactly what Paul says will happen again. Here are the continued words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The world will be given a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. They will look for the door and they will find a thorn bush. They will see a thorn bush and they'll think it's the door. In reality, they will search for God and they will find the Antichrist. They will see the Antichrist and they will think he is God. Further, both the Genesis type and the prophetic fulfillment from Paul's hand mentioned blindnesses as coming after the pulling to safety, not before. It is another indication of a pre-tribulation rapture. They were pulled through the door 
and then the blindnesses came. And what is the door that Lot was pulled through? It is the same door that we will be pulled through. Do you remember the verse I cited a few minutes ago, just prior to the tribulation in Revelation chapter four, as the church age is ending, John saw a door opened in heaven. And as he looked, a voice called out to him, said, come up here into the presence of the Lord, just as Lot was pulled into the presence of the Lord. What did he see? In John chapter 10, Jesus himself explains what the door was in Sodom's time and who the door is in the future. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The door is Jesus. But behind the door is the Lord as well. In Genesis 19, verse 18, after Lot was pulled to safety behind the door, it says, Ve'yomer Lot alahem alna Adonai. Then he said to them, No, my Lord. The word Adonai means the Lord God. It indicated that not only were the two angels there, but the Lord was there as well. In type and in fulfillment, we will be snatched through the door and into the presence of the Lord prior to the tribulation period. Our second thought today is the transfer of authority. This is from Genesis 38, verses 13 through 26. A lot of verses. If I was to spend all day on them, we'd be here for a month. But we'll go through them very quickly. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she, she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will give you a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there is no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass after about three months that Judah was told, saying, Tomorrow your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah my son, and he never knew her again. The next section for you today, which clearly shows the dispensational model, and which shows an implicit reference to a pre-tribulation rapture, is found in Genesis 38. It is the story of Judah and Tamar. It is a simple and a remarkable story of the coming Christ, but it also shows us much, much more. In this story, Judah is a picture of the Jewish people. Tamar is a picture of the Gentile-led church. Judah possessed the cord, staff, and signet, each which symbolizes the person and authority of Christ. Judah, however, bargained this right away for the price of a harlot. 
something clearly seen in the spiritual harlotry of Israel when they sold off Christ at his first coming. In agreement to the deal that was made, Tamar asked for a pledge until the payment was rendered. The word for pledge here is eravon, a very important word. It indicates an earnest deposit. When the expected payment from Judah, which was a goat, was received, then the earnest was to be returned. The Hebrew of this word, eravon, which is only used three times in the entire Old Testament and all in this chapter, was later adopted by the traders of Greece and Rome. It is also used in the New Testament three times, all by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Each time he states the Erebon is our promised redemption, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, identical words between Hebrew and Greek are most unusual. And yet this word was carried over certainly so that we would not miss the significance of what it is showing us here. Here are all three examples of the Erevon from the New Testament for you to see this connection. The first is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also sealed us and has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a Erevon, a guarantee. Next, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a Erevon, a guarantee. And finally, from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which all of you should memorize, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the Erevon, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Each time this word is used, it is referring to the Holy Spirit. He is the security given in hand for the fulfillment of every promise which relates to our salvation and our hope of eternal life. All who hold the pledge and can so produce it will be saved from condemnation and will be granted eternal life. This is the surety that we have because of our pledge, the Holy Spirit. And this is what Judah's pledge represents. The pledge consisted of his signet, cord and staff representing Judah's identity, authority, and tribe. In type, they symbolize the person and authority of Christ. This is what Tamar asked for and what was granted to her. And this is what passed from the Jews to the Gentiles during this dispensation known as the Gentile-led church age. By being the bearer of the Messiah, as Tamar was, and as the church now is, we share in his identity and in his authority. The caring of Christ, pictured by these implements, went to Tamar. Tamar means palm tree. In the Bible, the palm symbolizes uprightness and righteousness, something applied to the redeemed of the church numerous times from Paul's hand. It is also what Lot was called as well. Are you seeing the connection? Christ, our righteousness. So in this story, we see at least a dispensational model, but how does it point to a pre-tribulation rapture? because of where the word erovon, or pledge, is noted by Paul. Remember his words of Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which I'll repeat. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the erovon, the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. As we saw in the previous section concerning Lot, if the guarantee is given, and the Holy Spirit is taken out, and yet those who are sealed with the Spirit are not, that's not a very good guarantee. Further, in picture, Judah received the signet, cord, and staff 
back all at one time when it was sent to him from Tamar. There was no contact between them, and the account says that there was no further contact between them in the future. In other words, the two dispensations do not overlap. The church age ends, and the symbols of Christ's authority transfer back to the Jews. It is an implicit reference to a pre-tribulation rapture, which is built on by other explicit references. Our third thought today is going to be very confusing, unless you know the story of Moses. It's called the flock of Jethro. This is Exodus 3, verse 1. The next account is of Jethro's flocks, which is recorded in one verse, in Exodus 3, 1. In order to understand the context and the picture that is being made, we have to go back to an earlier point in Moses' life and follow the events up to the time that he leads and tends to Jethro's flock. Moses, whose name means he who draws out, is a type of Christ. This is explicitly seen in Acts chapter 7 during Stephen's speech to the leaders of Israel. Just as the Hebrews challenged Moses' authority in Exodus chapter 2, the leaders of Israel challenged Jesus' authority during his ministry among them. After this occurred, Moses went to Midian, and there he took a Gentile bride, Zipporah. Likewise, Jesus departed his people and has also taken a Gentile bride, pictured by Moses, marriage to Zipporah. He stayed there for a full 40 years. E.W. Bullinger defines the meaning of 40 in Scripture. Now, I want you to think of God's working through the church as I read what 40 means. It has long been universally recognized as an important number, both on the account of the frequency of its occurrence and the uniformity of its association with a, with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. Not judgment, like the number nine, which stands in connection with the punishment of enemies, but the chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. It is the product of five and eight and points to the action of grace leading to and ending in revival and renewal. Think of Israel under punishment being led to a period of revival and renewal. This is certainly the case where 40 relates to a period of evident probation, but where it relates to enlarged domain or to renewed or extended rule then it does so in it virtue of its factors of 4 and 10 and in harmony with their signification. In other words, the duration of the church age is perfectly summed up in these 40 years that Moses spent in Midian. But there was a time for Moses to depart and to go back to Egypt, which is a picture of the fallen world where his people, Israel, are. When Moses goes back to Egypt, it will be to face off against a new pharaoh, a new pharaoh. That's something that most people don't realize. This individual is a type of the Antichrist. The plagues which will come upon him and upon Egypt are only shadows and types of the parallel judgments which will come upon the world during the seven years of the tribulation period. In fact, they are a perfect mirror of what lies ahead, culminating in the swallowing of Pharaoh in the Red Sea and the casting of the Antichrist alive into the lake of fire. However, before Moses returns to Egypt, there's the issue of the church, the flock of God, which needs to be dealt with. This is seen in just one verse of Exodus 3, in which we will now analyze. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Before this verse, there were beautiful patterns of history revealed in the first two chapters of Exodus. There was the time of Israel's rejection of Christ, just as Moses was rejected by his people. There was the church age after that, with the seven churches of that age being seen in the seven daughters of Reuel. 
with the church age ending, we are seeing the time when God is getting ready to redeem Israel and bring them out of their place of hardship and bondage, leading them into the kingdom age. Matthew Henry, and this is hundreds of years ago, partly clued into this pattern when he said the following. The years of Moses' life are remarkably divided into three forties. The first 40 he spent as a prince in Pharaoh's court. Think of Christ ruling Israel. The second, a shepherd in Midian. Think of Christ in a Gentile-led church. And the third, a king in Jeshurun. Think of Christ on his throne in Jerusalem. Israel has not been forgotten by him. Their time of trial and testing after exile will come to an end. It is pictured in Moses' next portion of life in which the call to that life begins to be seen right now. Christ is, at this time in redemptive history, our good shepherd, leading the flocks of the church from the place of judgment pictured by Moses tending the flocks in Midian, which means exactly that, place of judgment. Moses is tending to the flocks, but immediately a new name is introduced, Jethro. He is identified as Moses' father-in-law, the priest of Midian. However, scholars debate as to whether this is the same man as Reuel, the father of Zipporah, or not. The term for father-in-law here is also used to describe other marital relations, such as son-in-law, brother-in-law, etc. Some argue that if Reuel was older when Moses married his daughter 40 years earlier, then this may be his son or his nephew who has become the priest in his place. Without getting bogged down in that, what the account asks us to do is determine the meaning of the name, not really how he's related to Moses. Reuel means friend of God. That is the father of Zipporah. And he was used to picture the corporate body of people from whom the collective church is derived. As the seven churches are the friends of God, they willingly invited Jesus into their home, just as Reuel willingly called Moses into his. Now we have this new figure, or at least a new name, Jethro. This comes from the word yatar, which means to remain over or to be at rest. The Haw Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament submits that it refers to one portion of a quantity which has been divided. Generally, it is the smaller part, and sometimes it is the part of least quality. Therefore, Abarim translates the name Jethro as remnant. If Reuel was there to picture the time of the church age, then Jethro must be introduced for another reason. If the church age is ending and God is ready to restore Israel to its inherited place in redemptive history after the tribulation period, then his name must be tied to that. This word, Yetar, from which Jethro is derived, is used in Ruth 2, verse 18, concerning the food which Ruth had taken and kept back for her mother-in-law, Naomi. There it said, so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back, Yetar, after she had been satisfied. That was a transfer of food from a Gentile to her Jewish mother-in-law. That story, if you know its meaning, showed Naomi is picturing Israel in captivity awaiting their restoration, which came at the end of the story. This word, yatar, is also used in this set of verses from Ezekiel 39, which is happening in our lives right now. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none, that word yatar, of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. A study on this word, yatar, 
time and time again gives hidden clues of the return of Israel to the land and to its exalted place as chief among the nations in the end times. It is fitting then that the name Jethro is introduced after Reuel. There is the church age, Reuel, and then there is the restoration of the remnant of God's people, Israel, pictured by Jethro. Seemingly unimportant names actually bear directly on what is about to transpire and what will continue to occur even thousands of years later. Every detail fits like a God-manufactured glove, perfectly aligning with his redemptive plan. So let's now analyze Exodus 3 verse 1 by clauses. And he led the flock to the back of the desert. The words to the back of the desert are ahar hamidbar. Ahar means behind or the following part. It is also translated as west. And this is how some versions actually translate it. The second word hamidbar means the desert. In the Hebrew way of dividing the points of the compass, if the east is before a person, the west is then behind them. The south would be to the right and the north would be to the left. The east is a place of exile. When Adam was kicked out of the garden, it was to the east that cherub was placed to guard the entry to the Garden of Eden. When the tabernacle was erected, cherubim were woven into the veil, which then pointed east, symbolizing restricted entry into the Holy of Holies. When Moses died, he was buried east of Canaan as punishment for his transgression. And when Israel was exiled to Babylon, it was to the east. The verse continues, and came to Horeb. Horeb is the exact same place as Sinai. The names are just interchangeable. The names are used to indicate the same place, but the words are selected to be used for different reasons when they are in fact used. Horeb means arid or desert, which interestingly is the same in meaning as the name Zion, the mountain of God, which in one sense means parched place. The verse continues, the mountain of God. In Hebrew, it says El Har Ha Elohim, to mountain the God. The definite article is before God. It is not before mountain. This is showing us something, and it is something specific, and it is something particular. It is intended to show us that the flock is being taken to a specific location to worship the one true God. Later in chapter 4 of Exodus, it will say that Moses returns to Jethro, but the flock is never mentioned. This is the first and the last time that it is referred to. What is that picturing? Before I explain it, I want to give the verse in Hebrew with a short commentary and a translation from my Israeli friend Sergio. Ve'inhag et hatzon achar hamidbar ve'yavo el har ha Elohim horva. What's interesting is that the word midbar means word or mouth. For example, debar Elohim, God's word. It also means desert, but it means word or mouth. So the sentence could be read like this. And he drove the herd of sheep according to the words, and he came to the mountain of the god Horeb. The dual meaning of this verse is showing us a picture of something. Abarim Publications states the following concerning the roots of the word Devar. These two root verbs are really quite adjacent in Hebrew thought. Note that the word Midbar means wilderness or desert, and the related verb Devar means to speak. When Paul augments Isaiah's spiritual armor, he adds the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Words commonly protrude from one's mouth, and the mouth is typically a wet place, not a dry place. But it should be noted that the Meribah incident occurred at Horeb. Meribah was 
Exodus chapter 17, where it said, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. This may sound like way too much information, but the Hebrew is exact and it is important. Let's look it over. The pictures have shown that Israel is in exile and it is now the church age. Suddenly, and with almost no information in those 40 years of Moses' life being noted, which is the church age, we come to the end of the 40 years. And now Moses is heading west with his flocks. If east is exile and from whence comes destruction and the flocks are being west, then it is to a place of safety and from whence comes life. Horeb means arid or desert, just as Zion, which is the place we're heading to, means parched place. It seems curious that the mountain of the God would be defined this way, but what is it that gives life? Water. All of heaven would be barren. It would be a wilderness without God speaking it into existence, right? It's a parched place. That's why heaven, the heavenly Mount Zion, is a parched place, except where it proceeds from the word of God. The words proceed from the wet place, the mouth, and the word of God is where the water of life issues from. Horeb is where the water from the rock came from. Paul in the New Testament says this about the account. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In the New Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, remember Zion means parched place, where does the water proceed from? from the throne of God and the Lamb. As Moses pictures Jesus, the prophetic explanation of this verse would translate it as, and Christ drove the herd according to the word and came to the mountain of the God, even to Horeb. This one verse clearly is showing the transition from the church age to the time where Israel will be redeemed from Egypt. And it perfectly matches the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 concerning the end of the church age. Here is that passage. For we say that to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. This transition verse, Exodus 3, verse 1, is given in type and picture to show the end of the church age at the rapture, at the word of the Lord. Without abusing the text, the Hebrew, or the concepts which permeate all of Scripture concerning Israel and the dispensational model, we can paraphrase the words of this verse. And Christ drove the flock, meaning the church, according to the word, and they came to the mountain of the God, even the parched place, Zion. Christ is calling us home to the heavenly Mount Zion at the word of the Lord. We are going home. Finally, as these events preceded the judgments on Egypt, remember that he hasn't gone back to Egypt yet and the judgments have not started, all of which picture the seven-year tribulation period on earth described in Revelation. It is an anticipatory look from 3,500 years ago into a pre-tribulation rapture. The focus on Israel does not begin until after the flock of Jethro is secured away. Once again, a pre-tribulation rapture is seen in these ancient types and pictures. And our final thought today, the day of the Lord. Our final picture of a pre-tribulation rapture today comes from a pattern which runs all the way through scripture. 
the 66 books of the Bible actually form a perfect circle of three concentric circles. Now, this is not the crazy Buddhist teaching about the mandala, okay? I've already quoted you the text first for today from Ecclesiastes 1.9, which says that which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. There is a repetition of things going on in God's word. And you don't need to make it into a circle. You can simply take the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and lay them out and put the three books of each spoke under them. It just is easier to understand when it's in a circle, all right? Each inner circle forms spokes, just as you would have on a wheel. Each spoke is based on a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 spokes which divide into the 66 books of the Bible. And therefore, there are three books on each spoke. These spokes form, and I mean this, marvelous patterns between the books on each spoke. There are literally thousands of them. In fact, the number of patterns which runs through them is actually almost infinite. The eighth spoke corresponding to the Hebrew letter Chet, which has the meaning of outside or divide, think of Israel and the church, okay, etc., contains the books of Ruth, Amos, and 1 Thessalonians. A pre-tribulation rapture becomes evident in this spoke containing these books. Now, when I first started reading the Bible, and I was probably up to my 50th or 60th time of reading the Bible, I started reading the Bible in this pattern, Genesis Isaiah, Romans, Exodus, Jeremiah, 1 Corinthians, all the way through to the end, which is the Song of Solomon's Acts and Revelation. And if you do that, you will find patterns that will just blow you away because these books perfectly match each other. God is showing us something divine in his word. As I noted earlier, in Ruth, there was a transfer of food from a Gentile to her Jewish mother-in-law. Naomi pictured Israel in captivity, waiting her restoration. This came at the end of the story, and that's very important to understand. Before that occurred, the hero of the story, Boaz, married Ruth. In both type and picture, he prefigures Jesus Christ. After the marriage of Boaz to Ruth, after it, in verse 13, Ruth is not mentioned again anywhere in the entire story. The focus goes solely back to Naomi, picturing Israel, who was in captivity and is now receiving back her proper place. The child who was born to the marriage is Obed. The final clause of verse 17 says, and they called his name Obed. The name the women of the city called out for this wonderful child to be is Obed. It is tied to the fact that he is Naomi's son and to the fact that he is, in fact, a son. And so they call him Obed, which means servant. What does his being Naomi's son have to do with him being a servant? This is what confounds people. But the answer comes from the account itself. Just three verses earlier, as soon as it was said that Ruth was given conception and bore a son, the women said, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, meaning a goel, meaning a redeemer, and may his name be famous in Israel. In the very next verse, it says, May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. The son is the close relative the Goel, who is Naomi's redeemer. He is the one who will be the restorer of life and the nourisher of her life. He will be a servant to her. And so they call him Obed. All of this transpired after the marriage of Boaz to Ruth. It pictures Christ's return to Israel as their redeemer. But how does this show a pre-tribulation rapture? It does it by the position of the book in Ruth in the order of the Bible. As I said earlier, the books of Ruth, 
Amos and 2 Thessalonians are all on the eighth spoke of this wheel. Ruth ends with only four chapters. However, in both Amos chapter 5 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the focus is on what? The day of the Lord, the tribulation period. The taking of the bride is found in Ruth 4 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in both of them, right? Only after that is the day of the Lord introduced in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in Amos chapter 5. The pattern reveals what God has done and what he will do. Only after the Gentile woman becomes a bride does the day of the Lord come. And as the day of the Lord is only after the revealing of the Antichrist, and as the Antichrist is revealed only after the taking out of the Erevon, the guarantee, the Holy Spirit, then we can be assured of a pre-tribulation rapture. The patterns are consistent and they literally permeate scripture. We don't need to be confused by varying interpretations of a few New Testament verses which are twisted to suit the preferences of one choice of doctrine over another. Instead, God has shown in the Old Testament types and pictures of where a proper theology stands. This is true with every single major doctrine of the Bible, including that of eschatology. Within the doctrine of eschatology, the rapture is clearly defined by these ancient types as well. Today, we've looked at just four of them, but there are others waiting for you to see. They are put on display as an assurance of our blessed hope. Thank you, Bob, for those words at the beginning of the church today. The return of Christ for his church. You see, everything points to Jesus, Old Testament, New. All people are either moving towards the door or they are alienated from it. There is a spiritual blindness which covers the eyes of the people of the world. But when we call out to Jesus, the blindness is replaced with sight. Darkness is replaced with light. Condemnation is replaced with salvation. And death is replaced with life. If our eyes are open to Christ, we become a part of his flock and we are set on a wonderful path, heading west once again to the land of delight that was lost so very long ago. There is a time of evil which is coming upon the whole world, and when the call is made for the righteous to come home to glory, there will only be suffering and death for those left behind. It is Jesus who holds the keys to life and death in his hands. We have a choice to make before that great day of wrath comes, and I hope and pray that you will make the right one before it arrives. If you have never called on Jesus Christ and asked him to save you from this terrible time which lies ahead, let me tell you how you can do it, even today and even right now. The Bible says that we are all bound under sin. It is an inherited defect. Our first father, Adam, sinned, and that sin travels through all, to all humanity because everybody has a father and sin travels from father to child. That means every woman inherits their father's sin and every male inherits their father's sin. But Christ came to cut that. That's what circumcision pictures, the cutting away of the sin nature traveling from the father because Christ was born of God and of a woman. And so she was a vessel that carried God's son. He was born without sin because of that. And because he was born without sin, he is now qualified to take away the sin of Adam if he can only prevail over the law which he was born under. And so he was born under the law of Israel, God's standard. And he lived it perfectly. That's the purpose of the four gospels is to show us this, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled that law. He was born without sin, so he was qualified he lived the law perfectly, and therefore, he can take away our sin. And how does he do it? By giving up his own life in exchange for our sins. That's what this cross behind me signifies, the death of Jesus Christ 
taking away our sin. If we simply look to the cross and say, I want what you have. I want to be saved from this sinful world. I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. He will do it. And he died taking away our sin, and he rose again because he had no sin of his own. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin of his own. Death couldn't hold him. It was impossible, according to Peter, for death to hold Jesus Christ. And by putting your faith and trust in what he did, you too can be saved. Sin dies with his death. You are no longer under sin, but you are under grace. You are now found acceptable to God because of Jesus Christ. And he could no more reject you than he would reject his own son because his son's blood is what covers your sins. So if you've never called on Jesus Christ to forgive you, please do it today. And then live for this wonderful God who has done all these things for us and promises us such a blessed hope. Now, I'd like to uh, say something before I give our closing verses that anybody who has watched this video on YouTube, you didn't have to pay for it. We don't monetize our videos here. There's no stupid little ads coming up in front of you. Everything about this has been free except your time looking at my ugly face. And so I would ask one thing of you, other than receiving Jesus Christ, if you have not done that, one thing is to share this video because the time is short. I've never asked anybody to share a video before, but I would ask you to do that today. Please take the time to watch this and to share it with somebody else and to pass it out so that the word can get out that God is coming. He is coming pre-tribulation. I have great friends that are mid-trib and post-trib people. And like I say, I never argue with people over these things because you're, all you're going to do is just make yourself look dumb. You're taking the same verses that they're taking and they're looking at it from a different perspective. Show them this video because the Old Testament has revealed what God is going to do. Pre-tribulation rapture, we are out of here when Christ blows that trumpet. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Our closing verse comes from Titus chapter 2. It's verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Remember those last words, zealous for good works? We're not just saved, waiting for Jesus to come. We're to be out doing stuff for him, okay? Anyway, next week is uh, Exodus 28. It's uh, verses 31 through 43. In looking into these verses, we will, our souls bless. It's entitled, Clothed in Majesty and Righteousness. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you something I've never told you before. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even though an infinite gap exists between God and man because of our sin, Jesus can bridge that gap. He is the God-man. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? And please don't click off this video if you're on YouTube because we're going to have communion now, and we'd like you to come and have communion with us as well. So please do that. We do it every single week. And be blessed in Jesus Christ the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful opportunity of digging into your word and seeing the things that you have shown us. And as sure as I am sitting here, the Hebrew has been analyzed properly. It's been analyzed by specialists in the field. It's been analyzed by people from the land that speak the word perfectly. And then it was analyzed by me as well. And I am confident that every single thing that I have said is correct. It is without error, except in my own stuttering speech. And that we have presented the case for a pre-tribulation rapture according to your will. Because this is your will for us, is to have us taken out of this place before the time of wrath comes. 
And Lord, you have heard the prayer requests that we mentioned before the the uh, service be, or the sermon began. Janice and Georgia, and Darla with her hip, and all of the other people that are struggling that we've talked about earlier in the uh, the uh, service. I would pray for them right now, and I would pray for anybody that's struggling with their faith that they would just simply look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and be settled in their hearts and in their souls that he is capable of taking care of all of the problems that they face. This I pray that you will be glorified and that they will be edified. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Okay, I uh, have not worn this for a couple weeks and Linda astutely finally noticed a week ago and she said, why aren't you wearing the tallit? And then somebody emailed me and asked me the same question, my friend out in Arizona. And the reason why is from time to time, I want to change things up because I don't want anything to become legalistic. Oh, why don't you do this? Because it's not required. I just simply wear this because Jesus would have worn a tallit and he would have had seat seats on the end of it and, you know, the whole thing. I'm just doing this to emulate him. But I don't want anything to become legalistic. And so once in a while, you'll see me stop doing something. That's why I do that. But anyway, I can, uh, I've moved the, the streaming device, so that can go back over here. And um, we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from 1 Corinthians, from the hand of Paul. The only thing I add in is the blessing that the Lord would have given over it. And we read these words there. For I received from the Lord, that I, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem, Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed this as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Pari HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Is everybody here confused enough today? I know there's a lot of information in there. you just got to go back and you've got to review all the surrounding sermons because they're a part of a greater whole that you won't understand unless you take it in context. But that's the best I can do from an Old Testament viewpoint because, as I say again and again, people read the exact same passages in the New, and they all fight over it because they're looking at it from their presupposition without taking into context what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament reveals what God is going to do. That's why he gave us that verse in Ecclesiastes, and that's why we should look for these things. So, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into your word and to dig deep into it and to find out what you were trying to tell us. And I just love you and I praise you. I thank you for every person that's here today, and I ask that you bless them in their hearts and in their souls all the people that are watching streaming online as well and participating with this church who are so welcomed in here as members of this church. And we thank you for them as well. Lord, we love you. We commit the day to you and the week ahead. We pray for safety and security. But if we don't receive it, give us just enough, enough strength to praise you through the trials. And with that, we will be content. And we love you and we praise you and we exalt you. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Amen. amen.